the book of Acts has been called the fifth gospel. It's a continuation of the gospel of Luke, but it's quite interesting to note something else. And this is quite remarkable. The last recorded fact about Jesus in the gospels is as follows. In the gospel of Matthew, the last recorded fact is the resurrection. That's in Acts 1. In the gospel of Mark, the last recorded act is the ascension. That is in Acts 1. And in the gospel of Luke, the last recorded fact is the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts 1. And in the gospel of John, the last recorded fact is the promise of the second coming. And that, my friend, you guessed it, is in Acts 1. All of that. So you see, all of the four gospels have been poured, as it were, into a funnel, and they come down into this bottle or jug of the first chapter of the book of Acts and then open out into the book of Acts. The great missionary commission given in the four gospels is also confirmed in Acts. Acts furnishes a ladder on which to place the epistles. It's a bridge between the gospels and the epistle. And the New Testament without Acts leaves a great yawning gap. Or as Dr. Howson put it, if the book of Acts were gone, there would be nothing to replace it. Now, the book of Acts records actually the beginning of the church, the birth of the church. It's interesting to note this. Genesis records the origin of the physical universe. Acts records the origin of the spiritual body, which is the church. Now, most of the books, we attempt to pull out of the book a verse that somehow or another is more or less the theme of the book. Now, here in the book of Acts, of course, it would be Acts 1.8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, I have divided the book of Acts according to that. You find it works out something like this. You see the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters. Then chapters 8 through 12, you see the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Judea and Samaria. Then in the last part, chapters 13 through 28, the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles to the uttermost part of the earth. And the book of Acts is not complete. It just breaks off, you know, with Paul in his own hired house in Rome. And that is it. There's no proper ending. You know why? Because the book of Acts is now being written from heaven. Maybe the Lord has Dr. Luke up there writing the rest of the book of Acts. And maybe you and I'll get in. I don't know. I hope so. It would be wonderful to find out that well, let's put it like this. It may not be in the book of Acts, but it's in the book up there what you and I are doing for him. It says at the end, the books are going to be open, friends. And that is the thing that 
may frighten some of us, but it's going to take place. Now let me come back to the book of Acts, and there are several comments I would like to make that will help you in reading this. Now, for those of you who are studying the Bible with us, and this is a very simple method. I have no complicated outlines or complicated studies to present. I do not believe the Word of God should be presented that way. We do not approach it from the philosophical viewpoint at all. We approach it from the historical and biblical viewpoint. And we believe that it should be very simple indeed. And we believe that the Spirit of God can speak to us and through us in that way. And I thank the Lord that we receive so many letters from people in all walks of life. A professor in the University of Ohio, another professor down in Virginia, another professor up in the state of Washington, one in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then from a great many people that barely can read the English language. And they all testify to this. It is understandable. And that, my friend, is the nicest thing you could say about our Bible study. Because if you want to know the truth, we believe that the Word of God must be made understandable. And the problem today has been that a great many teachers today, especially in some of our schools, they misread a verse of Scripture. When the Lord Jesus said, feed my sheep, they thought he said, feed my giraffes. And that's what they're trying to do. And we believe, as Dr. Ironside used to put it, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddies can get them. And I have here a whole sheaf of letters from children. And I may, just because I've mentioned it, pull out a couple of letters from there and share them with you next time. Now, notice these features that if you will note them as you go through the book of Acts, it'll make this book more meaningful to you. You find, first of all, there is the prominence of the Lord Jesus Christ in this book. He's gone now. That is, in the first chapter, he ascends. But he's still at work. He's just moved his position <laughs> his location. He's moved his headquarters. As we said, we felt his headquarters were in Capernaum as long as he was here on this earth. His headquarters now are at the right hand of the Father. And he's just simply removed headquarters from one place to another. And so you have here the prominence of the Lord Jesus Christ at work through the book of Acts, but from the vantage place of heaven itself. Now we have a second thing that we see in the book of Acts, and that's the prominence of the Holy Spirit. Christ promised to send the Holy Spirit. You find it mentioned in the Gospel of John about four times. And then here in the book of Acts, he promised it. Now this is the age of the Holy Spirit that you and I live in. The great fact of this age is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. That's the great fact of this age. Now you have the power of the church in this book. You will notice that there is a power that is in the church, and of course that's the working of the Spirit of God, that my friend is totally absent today from the church, and I don't care whose church that you're talking about. I have traveled across this country and up and down this country, 
And I think I know it fairly well. And I have heard people say, oh, there's a revival going on over yonder and over here and down there. And I've always tried to get to those places, but they ran out of revival when I arrived. Maybe I did something to stop it. I don't know. But it wasn't going on when I was there. That is what I would call a revival and what you have here in the book of Acts, the power of the church. And then you have the prominence of the church, both visible and invisible. Something new has come into existence in the book of Acts, and that is the church. Then you have the prominence of places. We gave you the outline a moment ago. We begin in Jerusalem. We'll end in Rome. And Sir William Ramsey checked all these places that Paul visited and Dr. Luke, and he found out how accurate he was. And then you have in this book the prominence of persons. Dr. Luke mentions 110 persons by name, besides reference to a multitude here and a mob here and a crowd here. I think by the end of the first century, there were literally millions of believers in the world. The church in those first two or three hundred years had a phenomenal growth that has not been surpassed before or since by any movement at all. It was phenomenal, but it got slowed down, and it certainly is slowed down today. But it's working out just exactly as the Lord said it was. Now we have the prominence of the resurrection. That is the center of gospel preaching. Now, we today in the church have one Easter sermon a year. A preacher gets up one Easter sermon a year. I began many years ago uh, preaching in August. If I was not away on vacation or in conference, I always made a point of coming up with Easter in August. And I want to tell you, people came just to find out what had happened to a preacher They thought the heat was getting him, that he had the idea there was Easter in August. But in the early church, there never was a sermon preached. But what? The very center and heart of the message was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter began on the day of Pentecost. That was his theme, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He says, what is taking place here is because he's up yonder. And... He has sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And it's all due to the resurrection. And you find Paul made the resurrection the very heart of his message. I believe today that if anyone wants to ride a hobby, and there are a great many who ride hobbies in the Bible, a great many people like to take prophecy, others like to take the Keswick message, and others like to take some other facet or phase. Now, if you want to ride a hobby, let me suggest one for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday was resurrection. It was Easter. He was risen. And they proclaim that everywhere. And that you find in the book of Acts. Then in chapter 8, there is the prominence of Peter in the first section and Paul in the last section. Now, there is a strange omission of the other apostles. The emphasis is upon the ministry of Peter, the ministry of Paul. And I think for a very definite reason. To begin with, Dr. Luke was acquainted with the ministry of these two men. 
He was an associate of Paul. And apparently, instead of the great many people thinking there was a disagreement between Peter and Paul, very candidly, I'm of the opinion that Dr. Luke and Peter and Paul got together a great many times, a great many talks, a great many things that are not recorded in the Scripture at all. May I come back to the seventh thing that I've mentioned that was prominent, and that's the resurrection, to make this comment, because here's a verse that has been so, I think, twisted and distorted. The Lord Jesus Christ says, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. How was he lifted up? Well, he was lifted up in resurrection, friends. Lifted up from the dead. That's the message today. And if that message is not given, oh, I don't care how much you talk about Jesus and how much you talk about how lovely he is. The important thing is he came back from the dead and he says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. I think the problem today has been the fact we're not preaching a resurrected Christ. The book of Acts does, and we'll have an occasion to put the emphasis there. Now, the proper title for this historical book has always been a problem here in the Bible I use, which is the authorized version. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. And you find that in other texts. The Codex Vaticanus manuscript calls it the Acts of the Apostles also. And others have called it the Acts of the Ascended and Glorified Lord. And I would rather think that the key is given to us in the first two verses of the first chapter And if I may venture my own opinion, it would be this title, and this is a long one, of course, The Lord Jesus Christ at Work by the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles. I would say that that would be the title of this very wonderful book. Now let's come, therefore, to Acts 1 and look at this statement that we've just made. And you see now the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, in Jerusalem. That begins with chapters 1 through 7. Now, will you listen to Dr. Luke as he begins? The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus. Now, that former treatise was the gospel of Luke, of course. And Theophilus, obviously, is the name of a man, and his name means lover of God. This idea that it can be watered down to mean just any lover of God is not quite the way Dr. Luke is writing. He knew a man by the name of Theophilus. It was a name in that day, and a name that was befitting him, of course, a lover of God. Now he says, I wrote to you the gospel of Luke. Now I'm sending to you this other further treatise of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, In the Gospel of Luke, he began to do and teach. In the book of Acts, he continues to do and teach. And today, he's still at it, if I may use that expression. And he'll continue on with this present program until he takes the church out of the world. That is the picture that is before us. Now it says, until the day in which he was taken up, after that, He threw the Holy Spirit. Now, just because he was taken up to heaven didn't mean he didn't keep working, didn't keep doing and teaching. 
And now, from the vantage place of the right hand of God, after that, he threw the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles, had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So that you have here now, what do they call it in the army, this idea of passing of command from one man to another? Actually, we have here the Lord Jesus Christ, and he working through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through the apostles, and on out to you and me where we are today. This is a remarkable statement, by the way. But we're not through with it. This is another one of these periodic sentences we talked about in the Gospel of Luke, and it goes on down through verse 4. I'm reading now verse 3. "...to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion," that is, after his suffering and death, "...by many infallible proofs." Now, I want to emphasize that, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. There are ten recorded appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And his post-resurrection ministry as revealed in his appearances, it has a more important bearing on the lives of Christian today than the three-year ministry recorded in the four Gospels. Now, I have a book that's entitled The Empty Tomb. We sent it out at Easter time. That book has to do with the post-resurrection ministry of the Lord Jesus. And you remember Paul put it like this, Paul says, though we have known him after the flesh, we know him no longer after the flesh. You and I today know him not as the one who walked here 1,900 years ago. But we know him today as the one, the man in the glory. As someone said, the church has lost sight of him. He's up there right now. This very moment, while I'm talking and while you are listening, he's up there and he is there and is real. Oh, how real he is. I'm going to share with you a statement that came to me in a letter from a person who said they'd been a church member all their lives, and they went through all the little ritual, thought they were a Christian, but they had to come to the Word of God to find out they didn't even know him. And the wonderful thing they found out, not only did he walk here 1,900 years ago, but he's alive today and yonder at God's right hand, and they could come to him and know him as Savior. How wonderful that is. And he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Now, the problem today with the unbelief of man is not in the facts. The facts are available. I wonder if anybody that's listening to me doubts the Battle of Waterloo and that Napoleon fought there. Now, very frankly, I believe that Napoleon lived, and I believe he fought the Battle of Waterloo. And I give you my word, I have very little evidence for it, but I believe it. And may I say to you, there's 10,000 times more evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the Battle of Waterloo. And yet, there are people today, they say they don't believe it. Where's the problem? 
The problem is in the heart, the unbelief, the natural tendency of man to run away from God as Adam did and turn his back upon God today. The problem, my friend, if you're listening to me today and an unbeliever, the problem is with you, not with the Word of God. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, and if you really want to know, you can know. It's because you don't want to know. The problem is not in the mind. The problem is in the will. That is the thing that's all important. Now, the three-year ministry of the Lord Jesus for you and me is not as vital, not as important as the 40-day ministry. And so we have here the post-resurrection ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, will you note verse 4? and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Now they are to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they are to wait until that takes place. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now, I want to call your attention to something that is very important here. He appears to them now with these instructions, and he says that the thing that's going to take place is that you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now, may I say here that the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit, and there are two baptisms that I think that I ought to call your attention to. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, water baptism is ritual baptism, and I believe in it. The Holy Spirit is real baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you read in chapter 2 of the book of Acts of the day of Pentecost, you'll find out there's no mention of them being baptized. The mention there is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The important thing is the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit for experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we shall see, is what puts you in the body of believers. It puts you in the body of believers, the church. And that's the reason we're going to see in chapter 2 what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came to do what? Put them in the body of believers. Now, in order that they might serve, we're told in Acts 2 they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, means that the other ministries of the Holy Spirit were performed, and that I consider very important indeed, and we need to, I think, notice that. Now, I want to move on in this particular section here because we're going to emphasize all of this when we come to it in chapter 2. Now, will you notice in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Acts, "...when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, you will find that some of the commentators rebuked the apostles for asking this question. 
and they feel like that they made a mistake in asking the question. Now, I believe that the answer our Lord gave indicates they made no mistake. Their question was a legitimate question and a natural question, and one that our Lord answered like that. He did not rebuke them. He never told them it was a foolish question. You see, they were brought up and schooled in the Old Testament. They were told that the Messiah is coming, that the Messiah is the one who will establish the kingdom upon this earth. That's the earthly hope, still is an earthly hope. God is not through with this earth. He doesn't intend to sweep this earth under the rug, although it's small enough to be swept under his rug. But he's not going to do that. He has an eternal purpose. And the kingdom of God that they talked about actually is the fact of the reestablishment of the house of David. And that was the thing that he talked to them about during those 40 days. He's the one that talked to them. He let them know that at this particular time, the kingdom would not be established, that he's now going to call out people to his name, the church. And that was the thing that these men, when they met in the first council of Jerusalem, in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, why you will find out that when they came together, why that after discussion, James said this, that after this, he says, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I'll build again the ruins thereof, and I'll set it up. Well, what's he doing today? Well, today he's visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people to his name. And so today God is calling out of the world a people to his name. And when they trust Christ, they're baptized into the body of believers of the church. That is the important thing today. Therefore, when they wanted to talk about, will you restore at this time the kingdom to Israel? Notice what our Lord said. He said unto them, it's not for you to know the times are the seasons which the Father put in his own power. This is not the subject of discussion right now. And I want to say this to you, friends, it's not the subject of discussion today of the times. Now, there are a great many people say to me, don't you think that the Lord will be coming soon? Well, now, I'll let you in on something. This is confidential between you and me. I believe he's coming soon. (laughs) Somebody says, well, then you are dealing with this question then of the soon coming of Christ. Oh, no, no, I privately believe that. But I don't have any right to get on this radio and tell you that he's coming soon, because I don't know. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons, friends. That part is not the important part. What's our business today? Now, notice, our Lord doesn't rebuke them. He says, I've got something else in mind. There's something else for us to do. I believe today in prophecy. But I think you can go to seed in prophecy, and you can overemphasize it today. And I don't think it'll build you up in the faith if you spend all your time in prophetic study. Now, this is a glorious, wonderful thing. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. The Father's put them in his own power. Now, listen, here is your commission, but ye shall receive power. 
after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, there are several things I want to say about this. This is the commission that holds good for today. This is a commission that's not given to the church. You say, you don't mean that. I do mean that. I mean, as a corporate body, this is not a corporate commission given to the church as a body. This is given to these men personally, privately, a few days before the Holy Spirit came and formed the church. And it's a personal command to each believer. Now, this is what I mean. He didn't say to your church to go to the ends of the earth or to preach the gospel in your community. Now, that may be a little strange to some of you today. You know who he said it to? He said it to you. He said it to me. That's our business to get the Word of God out today. Now, somebody says, but don't we do it through the church? Right. But, you see, I can't go to the church, any church that I've ever served, and say, look what I have done. Our church has so many missionaries. Our church is taking the gospel out. Our church had so many saved last Sunday. I have a question for you. Are you going out to the ends of the earth today through some gospel witness, a missionary who goes out in person, or a radio program? Are you personally involved in getting the Word of God out? That's the important thing. You see, there are a great many people who want to talk about the times and seasons of his coming. <laughs> but they don't want you to talk even on the radio about the fact you and I to get involved in getting the Word of God out today. That's the thing that he's talking to these men about. And he's still talking to you and me today, friends. I'm of the opinion if the Lord Jesus right now came in where I am or where you are, and he'd say, now, I don't want to talk to you about the time I'm coming. I want to talk to you about getting the gospel out, to get people saved. That is the important thing. Ye shall receive power. Now, we need power for this, and we need the leading of the Lord. I want to say this and say it to the glory of God. I have never felt in my entire ministry the definite leading of God as I have in this radio ministry. Never of any church I ever served that I feel the direct leading. And I want to say to you, I've always felt led to every church I've gone to and felt like that my ministry there was a ministry that the Spirit of God had something to do with it. Now, may I say to you, friends, it's our business today. Now, he says you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, there's no power in us. There's no power today in a church the power is the Holy Spirit. And the question is, is the Holy Spirit able to move through an individual? Is he able to move through a church? Is he able to move through a radio program? That is the profound question of the hour, friends. And that's all important. Now, ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, ye shall be witnesses unto me, that is, unto Christ, and both in Jerusalem... That's hometown, that's your neighborhood, and in all Judea, that's out in your community, and in Samaria, 
And Samaria is the other side of the railroad track, the folk we don't associate with. Now, wait just a minute. I didn't say you should associate with them. I say this, you better take the gospel to them. Our responsibility is to get the Word of God out. You can't associate with everybody. You pick your friends. Everybody does that. That's part of the freedom we have. There's nothing wrong with that. I can well understand there are a great many folk that would not want to associate with me, not want me around. I think I would crimp the style of some of the saints today to tell the truth. But be that as it may, we have a right, but we do have the responsibility of getting the word out to these and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we ought never to lose sight of the fact that it is the Lord's intention. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandment to you and to me is personal, not to the church. Don't try to pass this off on the crowd, friends, and say, my church does this. What are you doing? That is the important thing. How much are you and I involved today in this? Now will you notice verse 9. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, the ascension is an important and significant miracle in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And it's especially, I think, true in a space age with eyes that are turned aloft today, and we talk about traveling in space. That's not new. The Lord Jesus took off. He didn't need a launching pad, nor did he need a space suit. He didn't go off in a missile. But there was, we're told, a cloud received him. What kind of cloud? A moisture cloud? No, it wasn't a cloud with moisture in it. It was a cloud, means the Shekinah glory cloud that filled the tabernacle. And that which he prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 5, when he made this statement, you remember, Glorify thou me with thy glory that I had with thee before the foundation of the world. When he was born into this world, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. When he left this earth, they wrapped him in glory clouds, my friend. That's what we're talking about here. And these men, will you notice them? While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, the witness of the two angels who appeared as men. And notice what they say here. They say to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, and that means the glorified Jesus, He'll return to the earth to the same place. His feet, Zechariah says, in Zechariah 14:4, shall touch down at the Mount of Olives. He took off at that place. He'll come back at that place. Why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Then return they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And that's not very far, by the way. A Sabbath day's journey kept people pretty much in their location. That's the reason that they all came to Jerusalem at the feast days to worship. And they camped very close to the temple. I think the Mount of Olives were probably covered with people camping out probably several hundred thousand during the Feast of Passover 
and the other feasts. Why? They stayed in the Sabbath day's journey of the temple. Now, verse 13, "...when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James." Now, these all continued with one accord in prayer. Now, notice that. They continued with one accord and in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. I rejoice that she was there. Now, I tell you, she's cleared now. He was virgin born. That was for sure. Now, the attitude of the apostles and believers is that of oneness and a prayer and waiting. This period, by the way, now cannot be duplicated today. Remember, you're in a time period, in a time capsule between his ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You never could have that duplicated today. We're not in that period. The Holy Spirit has already come in our day, by the way. Now will you notice, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said the number of names together were about a hundred and twenty men and brethren. Now, here's Simon Peter, and here he's speaking up again. This is before Pentecost, and when you hear Simon Peter speaking here, I have the feeling, my, I sure hope and pray the Holy Spirit will get here because this man really needs a filling of the Spirit, and so do you and so do I for that matter. Now, notice, he stands up and he says, "...men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David spoke, before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and had obtained a part of this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out." That's a very vivid picture, is it not? It was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue a keldamah, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Now, the question always arises, what about Judas here? Did this man that Simon Peter holds an election for? Is he the one that is the one that is to take the place? I don't think so myself. And now let me read verse 21. Wherefore of these men which accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us? Now, the election, I think, to choose a successor to Judas's care is conducted by Peter without the presence and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, friends. Mattathias was evidently a good man. He met the requirements of an apostle. And we're told here that he was the one. And they chose one who from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, that was the requirement of an apostle. He must have seen the resurrected Christ. Now, they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, 
show whether these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this minister and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots. I can't see that God's leading this. They're casting lots. The lot fell upon Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, the question is, is he the one that took Judas's place? I do not think so. I think that Matthias met all of the requirements, very frankly, of an apostle. I'm of the opinion that he was a good man and that he had seen the resurrected Christ and that he was an apostle. But the Holy Spirit apparently was not in this for the very simple reason he didn't come till the day of Pentecost for the church. And I believe that in his own time that the Lord Jesus himself appointed one to take Judas Iscariot's place. And I think that the Holy Spirit certainly ignored Matthias. And the one that I feel that the Spirit of God used was none other, of course, than Paul the Apostle. Now, somebody says, do you have an authority for that? Yes, will you listen to Paul? He says in Galatians, the first chapter, first verse, Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul says, I was chosen by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And how would he do it? Through the Holy Spirit that he'd sent into the world. And I do not find that working here. And I think that the ministry of Paul justified the fact that he was the one to take Judas's place. And I think he was very appropriate in doing that. Now, that's my reason. Now, I recognize that there are a lot of good men. In fact, I think that the majority of good men today would take the position that this man Matthias was the one that took Judas's place. I recognize I'm in the minority. Now, if you want to go along with them, you may, and you'll be with the majority. But now, if you want to be right, I'm sure you want to be right. You'd want to go along with me, I'm confident. All right, now let's come to the second chapter of the book of Acts. And when we come to this second chapter here, we find that we're on the day of Pentecost, and it records the fulfillment of Pentecost and Peter's sermon and the primary church, that is, the beginning church. Now, let me read the first verse. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And I could change that a little. When the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost took place... Fifty days after the Feast of Firstfruits. If you have my book on Leviticus, Learning Through Leviticus and Volume 2 on the 23rd chapter, you'll find that in that we show that the Feast of Firstfruits speaks of Christ's resurrection. Christ the firstfruits, and then afterward those that are Christ that is coming. 
But Christ the firstfruits has been raised from the dead. Now that feast speaks of him. Just as the Passover spoke of his death, the feast of firstfruits speaks of his resurrection. Christ, our Passover, is offered for us, Paul says. Now, that would lead us to believe then that Pentecost here represents something, that it had its fulfillment in something. And its fulfillment, of course, is the birthday of the church, the day the church came into existence, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. And fully come means that this was the fulfillment of the meaning and purpose for which it was given. Just as the Feast of Passover depicts the death of Christ, the Feast of Firstfruits, the resurrection of Christ, the Feast of Pentecost depicts the beginning and origin of the church. That is, it speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit on a very particular ministry to call a people out of this world. Now, five minutes before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, there was no church. Five minutes after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, there was the church. In other words, what Bethlehem was to the birth of Christ, Pentecost and Jerusalem were to the coming of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate. He began to baptize believers, which means he placed them in the body of Christ, identifying them with Christ as his body here on this earth. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. In other words, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit puts you in the body of Christ. Now, he began on the day of Pentecost to perform a ministry. And the day of Pentecost was fulfilled on that day. It doesn't mean when it says it was fully come that it was 12 o'clock noon or 10 o'clock in the morning or 2 in the afternoon. It means you now have the fulfillment of it. Now, will you notice verse 2? It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now, I call your attention to something that's very important. In fact, two things here that are very important. When the Holy Spirit came, he is not visible, but he made his presence known in two ways, by appealing to the two gates that mankind gets their information from. For instance, you and I get most of what we know through the ear gate. And we get most of what we know through the eye gate, through the eye gate and the ear gate. We get most of our knowledge today. We hear and we see. Now, we find here that the Spirit of God appeals to both. Here, there is a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Now, this rushing mighty wind... I'd like to say something about it because that's been played down so much. It was as a sound as of wind, but it was not wind. It had the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and that means that it had the sound of a tornado so that all of Jerusalem evidently heard it. It wasn't just a little blowing of a wind through the tops of the trees. 
the sound of a tornado has been likened to that of a thousand freight trains. It was an appeal to the ear gate. My daughter was in college with a girl who was from up in Kansas, I think Kansas City, Kansas, in that area where they had a tornado several years ago. And she wrote my daughter about it afterward because she was concerned about her friend. And she told her that it came near their house, I think two or three blocks. And she said the first thing that they noticed was it sounded like a thousand freight trains were coming through the town. Well, this was a rushing, mighty wind. It was a sound like it, but it was not wind, but a sound like it. Now, will you notice the next thing, verse 3 of chapter 2 of Acts, "...and there appeared unto them cloven tongues." I don't like that translation. "...there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder." That is, the tongues were like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And again, I call your attention to this. It was like as a fire means that it was not fire, but it looked like fire. And this is an appeal to the eye gate. So that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to the church, baptizing them into the body of believers, there was the sound of wind to the ear gate, like as a fire, an appeal to the eye gate. And this was not the baptism of fire, which is judgment yet to come, but it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, a great many people like to speak of this as the baptism of fire. Well, that baptism of fire is the judgment that's coming upon this earth someday of those that have rejected Christ. And I used to go to a prayer meeting where there was a wonderful preacher there. I couldn't help but love the dear brother. He's theologist, different mind. He always prayed that the fire would fall on us. Well, I always contradicted that prayer, canceled it out. I said, Lord, for goodness sakes, don't let fire fall on us. Fire burns you, you see. And this was like as a fire. It was not fire. The baptism of fire is the judgment of God yet to come. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to try to read this other end. Notice this carefully now, and I'll read it wrong. And they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, is that what your Bible says? Well, mine doesn't say that either. Mine says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, somebody says, but you've been saying they were baptized. Yes, they were. The Lord Jesus said, tarry until you be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the baptism took place. But when the day came, they were filled. Now, filling of the Holy Spirit's the only thing we're ever commanded to do anything about it. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We're never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit. That takes place the moment that you accept Christ. Now, the very fact they were filled with the Holy Spirit indicates that all the other ministries of the Holy Spirit to believers in this age had already been performed as they occur in this order. Now, they were first regenerated. John 3, 5, you must be born again. And then they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. They were indwelt by the Spirit. And they were sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
Because in Ephesians 4.30, we're told, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, you can grieve him, but you can never grieve him away because you've been sealed. And that is something you're never told that you're to do something to become sealed. You're just told that you are, you see. Then you have the baptizing of the Holy Spirit. And we've had that before. The Lord Jesus had said, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now, the baptism took place. But the baptism is what put them in the body of believers. The filling of the Spirit was for the service, and that is the thing that took place. Now, the experience of Pentecost came from the filling of the Spirit, not the baptizing of the Spirit. The baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit placed them in the church, the new body that came into existence here for the first time. Other tongues, by the way, here does not mean unknown tongues, but it means the polyglot languages of the Roman Empire spoken by the worshipers who'd come from the different areas of the Roman Empire, and they had come for the purpose of Pentecost because three feasts They were required, the males were, to come to Jerusalem, and they were there because of that. Many of them couldn't speak, actually, Hebrew. There are many Jews in this country today. They don't know Hebrew. Now, if you go over to Israel today, you will hear Hebrew spoken again. They are learning Hebrew. It was a dead language, and it's become a live language again. But now let's come back to this. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues, not unknown tongues, but tongues that could be understood as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, friends, this experience of the day of Pentecost can't be repeated. Now, this is what I mean. The Holy Spirit came definitely on the day of Pentecost to do a very definite thing, baptize them into the body of believers. And these other ministries were performed in the lives of those that were gathered together. Now, you can't duplicate Pentecost any more than you can duplicate Bethlehem and the birth of Christ at Christmas. Suppose that the next year the wise men appear in Jerusalem, And they'd say, say, we're looking for the birth of the king of the Jews. And somebody would say to them, maybe old Herod would say, weren't you fellows here last year? And they said, yes. Well, did you find him? They said, yes. Well, and if he was born last year, he's not born this year. Well, they said, we had such a wonderful time here last year and a wonderful experience. We thought we'd come and do it all over again. And you'd say, as I think Herod would have said, he'd have had sense enough to say, well, fellas, you can't duplicate that. He's only born one time. Now, friends, you can't duplicate Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. You don't have to beg him to come or urge him to come. He's here. The Spirit of God is in the world today. And the way you know he's here, he'll take the things of Christ and show them unto us. And when we're talking about the things of Christ, the Spirit of God has something that he can work with. Now, will you notice, they were all speaking with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, which means these apostles from up at Galilee, they couldn't speak these languages, but they're speaking them now. Will you notice verse 5? And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. 
You see, they were there for the very simple reason that they were there for this Feast of Pentecost. And they'd come from everywhere. Verse 6, Now when this was noised abroad, the better translation is this, Now when this sound having taken place. In other words, the multitude came together. You see, all of Jerusalem heard it. Do you remember the first time that you heard the sound barrier that was broken? I never shall forget. Right here in Pasadena, where I live, the sound barrier was broken the first time. And all of us were out in our front yard wanting to know where the sound came from. We'd never heard anything like it before. And this was something that these people had never heard before either. And they all came to the temple, for they knew it was apparently in that area. And I'm of the opinion that's where these men and women were at the time, and the 120. So we are told here they were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And the imperfect is used here, and it should be. Each man was hearing them speak in his own dialect. Now, not only, friends, were they speaking another tongue, that is, not an unknown tongue, but another tongue, but there are different dialects of the same tongue. And they were hearing this. This man may hear Latin spoken as it was in northern Italy. The others, it was spoken in southern Italy. And they were using the dialect. I always get amused when I hear somebody talk about speaking in tongues, and I ask them what tongue they're speaking in. They always say it's an unknown tongue. And I always like to ask them, what dialect were you speaking in of the unknown tongue? You see, the very interesting thing is that these actually were speaking in a dialect. Now, it'd be very difficult for me to speak in another dialect. As you well understand, I have a decided one, and I couldn't come up with an English or a French accent to save my life. But that's what these folk were doing at that day. Now, there's another angle of this. There are those that believe that the censure is not that they were speaking in an unknown tongue at all, but that they were speaking in their normal tongue, and the miracle was in that they heard it in their own language. And you'll notice that that is what it says. Every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, is the miracle in the speaking or in the listening? Now, that may be something for some of the tongues folk to turn over and think about for just a little. And the miracle, after all, I think is in the hearing. And I do not mean that they didn't speak in the tongue, but we need to be able to hear things accurately today. Now they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And notice where they came from. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, Cappadocia, way up in Asia Minor, and Pontus in Asia, and that's the province of Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt, here's Africa, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues 
the wonderful works of God. They were there from three continents. They were there, men that had diverse and different tongues, and they're now hearing these Galileans speak to them in their own language. There was no unknown tongue on the day of Pentecost. Verse 12, "...and they were all amazed and were in doubt." That is, they were perplexed is the better word. They didn't understand it, saying one to another, "...what meaneth this?" They didn't quite get it. Others, mocking, said, "...these men are full of sweet wine." Not new wine, but sweet wine. In other words, I understand that's a little more intoxicating. These men are really drunk. And if you ever notice, Paul says, "...be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit." You know, a drunk man seems to have more power. He certainly is more talkative. I wonder if many of us today do not need a filling of the Holy Spirit to loosen our tongue, not to speak an unknown tongue, but to speak the gospel to others. My friend, that's the kind of a tongues movement we need today. And by the way, we need that tongues movement of giving the gospel in the language that the man can understand it. That's the thing that's all important. Now, Simon Peter's going to stand up and answer that. Now, I begin reading at verse 14. Peter, first of all, answers these that are ridiculing what's taking place. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words." For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now, I think that you need to recognize who the congregation is. The congregation was ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. And it was a hundred percent Jewish city in that day, except when Pilate came up in his crowd from down at Caesarea. But this was the city of the Jews at this time. And you find that Peter speaks to them. I want to make this comment right now because it will come up later on. There are those that say, well, what about Jewish evangelism? Had you and I been present at the day of Pentecost, and been some question of whether you and I could have gotten in the church. The early church, this early church, was 100% Jewish. It was made up of Israelites. We need to recognize that today, that it began at Jerusalem, went out into Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's been the movement of the church from that day to this. You see, in the Old Testament was, "...come, let us go to Jerusalem to worship." They were commanded to go to Jerusalem. Now they're commanded to leave Jerusalem and take this message to the ends of the earth. Now he's speaking to these people, and you need to recognize that. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now he says to these that were mocking and ridiculing, he said, this is not drunkenness. It couldn't be drunkenness. Because, after all, look at the time of the day that it is. 
And he's answering this cynic there, you see. Then he quotes to them their scripture. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, he uses this prophecy to answer the cynical, and the unbeliever, and the mockers. That's the purpose of quoting this. He doesn't say that what you see here today is a fulfillment at all. He says, you think this is something odd or strange? Well, we have prophecy that says these things are going to come to pass. Now, notice what he quotes here. And I'm sure that those today that feel like this was fulfilled will just have to admit that all of it was certainly not fulfilled. This is that, or this is similar to, or this is like that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. The radio and TV has had an argument for a long time about a certain cigarette, about whether you want good grammar or a good cigarette. Of course, the argument to me was, is there a good cigarette? But the point is, they are arguing about good grammar. Well, what Simon Peter's talking about here, and we need a little good grammar in this, this is similar, or this is as that, or not maybe like that, but as that, that is to come later, that was spoken by Joel. Now, what is it that's to come? It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. Before that great and notable day of the Lord come, it shall come to pass, and whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. Take a look at this prophecy that he quotes. And I'm glad Simon Peter quoted as much as he did, because he makes it obvious that he was not attempting to say this was fulfilled. I do not think that anyone would claim that on the day of Pentecost that the moon was turned to blood or that the sun was turned to darkness. When Christ was crucified, there was darkness for three hours, but not on the day of Pentecost. Then, at that time, was there wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath? Was there blood and fire and vapor of smoke? No, my friend. There's no record of that. Simon Peter's making it very clear to you. What he's trying to say to these mockers, this is his introduction. He says, this is not something that ought to be so strange to you. This is predicted it's going to come to pass. And friends, today, Joel 2, 28 to 32 has not been fulfilled. And if you go back to the book of Joel, you'll find out that he had a great deal to say about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord begins with the great tribulation period, and it goes on through the millennium. You find in three chapters in the book of Joel that five times he mentions the day of the Lord, and he talks about the fact that it's a time of war, it's a time of great judgment upon the earth. 
Now, that is the day that Joel, too, will be fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. It wasn't fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. If you could only see that all that Simon Peter's doing in his introduction, he said, now look, this is not strange or contrary. The day's coming when this will be fulfilled. But today you're seeing something similar to it. And now he moves on. And I do want you to see the text of Scripture that he used. Listen to him, who he's speaking to. He's speaking to men who knew the Old Testament. They're up there at a feast. This is the background. Don't try to read 1,900 years of church history into this, friends. It just hasn't happened yet. This is the beginning of it. This is the inception of the church. Verse 22, Ye men of Israel. He doesn't say, Ye men of Southern California. He's talking to ye men of Israel. Hear these words. Now he's getting down to the nitty-gritty. Now he's getting to his subject. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Now, I haven't time to go into each one of these miracles and wonders and signs. Now, I personally think they're all different. I believe that miracles were performed for one purpose, wonders for another purpose, and signs for another. He did certain things that were to be signs. Other things, he performed miracles to heal someone just because it is a miracle. But it said who he was. And wonders are performed to get the attention. So that these are the three areas in which our Lord moved which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now, What he's saying is this, that this is not contrary to God's program. This is not something that happened that surprised God at all. But, he says, that does not relieve you of a responsibility. And it's nonsense now if you're beginning to say who is responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. Well, to begin with, the religious rulers began to move. And they are largely, I would say, to blame. They moved upon the multitude to make a mob out of them. They moved also upon the Roman government. And the Roman government is the one that tried him. And he was crucified on a Roman cross, friends. But there's no use arguing back there who's responsible. I'll tell you who's responsible. You are responsible, and I'm responsible. It was for my sins and your sins that he died. No man taketh my life from me, he said. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. He says, that commandment I have received of my Father. Now, this is all being done for you and for me, and so let's not point the finger here. But Simon Peter certainly is doing it. There's no question about that. But that's not the important thing, even that Simon Peter's doing at this time. Now he says, "...him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands, crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not 
possible that he should be holden of it. Now, he's talking about the resurrection. This is the first sermon ever preached in the church. This is the beginning. This is the day of Pentecost. What's he talking about? He's not talking about Joel. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my beloved. Let's don't change the subject. Let's not get away from what he's talking about. Now, he's going to quote a text. He's going to go to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10. And I'm glad that he did that, because it's going to help me, by the way, with Psalm 16. Now, listen to him. Verse 25 now of the second chapter of Acts. He says here, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord. And if you want to get the quotation, it's back in the 16th Psalm, verses 8 through 10. And back there, you will find out that David is speaking along this very line. And will you notice, for David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. That is, in that day it was Sheol. In Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now, if you want to read that, read Psalm 16 and begin down at verse 8 through 10. And this is a fulfillment of that. Now, this is the text of Simon Peter. Psalm 16, David is talking about the resurrection of Christ. Listen to the interpretation, the Spirit-filled interpretation of Simon Peter. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Now, right where Simon Peter was standing, which apparently was in the temple area, he could point his finger. I've stood in that temple area. And you could point your finger up yonder to the top of Mount Zion where David is buried. And he was buried in that day. And he could point his finger, which I think he did. He says, men and brethren, it's obvious David wasn't speaking about himself. Why, his bones are right up yonder. His grave is there. He did see corruption. He's not speaking of himself. But you and I, no one that died. He didn't see corruption. He's been raised from the dead. Now, will you notice, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. Now, what was David talking about in the 16th Psalm? He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. You say, how do you know that? I read Psalm 16, didn't say it quite that way. No, you have to wait till you get over here and have the Holy Spirit interpret this Scripture for you. But when you go back and read this, this refers to the Lord Jesus and to his resurrection. Now, what is Simon Peter talking about? 
His sermon is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first sermon ever preached in the church was an Easter sermon. And every sermon in the early church was an Easter sermon. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. That is, in Sheol, the place of the dead. Not hell as we think of it today. Neither his flesh did see corruption. Now listen to him. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. All that crowd that had been speaking in tongues, he's saying to the crowd there that day, said, this that you've seen has taken place because Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 33 now of the second chapter of Acts, "...therefore being by the right hand of God exalted." And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heavens, but he saith himself. See, Old Testament saints, friends, didn't go to heaven. If anybody had been up there, David would have been there. David is not ascended into heavens. You see, the Old Testament saints are going to be raised to live down on this earth someday. It's the church that's being taken to the new Jerusalem. It is believers today that when they die, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now notice verse 34 again. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou upon my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. That's Psalm 110.1. Now, what he's saying is this. Jesus is up yonder at the right hand of God, and he'll be there until he comes to establish his kingdom. But he's still working in the world. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, what's he preaching? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins, that he rose again. Now, will you notice? Now when they heard this, what? The message of Simon Peter. They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. Now this was for a people that had the word of God, that had the prophecies, that have heard the message. They have been going one direction, which is away from God, though they've had a God-given religion. They're to repent. They're to turn around now and come God's way. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized. That's water baptism. That would be the evidence they had repented, that they had come to Christ, that they had trusted him. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. That will be an evidence that you have trusted him for the remission of your sins and that you didn't bring a sacrifice to be offered in the temple, that you have trusted in Christ, that he was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now he says, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Anyone that believes will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all them that are far off. 1,900 years ago, you and I were a long ways off. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves for this untoward generation. 
Get away from this religion. Get away from the way you're going. Turn now to Christ. Now, verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And friends, this is not evangelistically speaking. It's not a preacher's count. These were genuinely born again. And as far as I know, it's the only campaign I ever heard of where the figures were accurate, including many of my own. Verse 42, now here is the church that's come into existence And I have a little book called The Spiritual Fingerprints of the Visible Church. How can you tell a real church? And I have a little book on that. Now, we send our notes and outlines. You send nothing. But if you want the book, we do have to ask you to have part in our ministry. Now, will you notice there are four fingerprints here. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The mark of a church is not the height of the steeple or the sound of the bell or whether the pulpit's in the middle or there's a divided chancel or whether they have pews or not. The important thing is, do they hold to the apostles' doctrine? That was one of the fingerprints of the visible church. And fellowship, they were sharing the things of Christ. And third, and in breaking of bread. And breaking of bread is more than just going through the Lord's Supper. It means that you are brought into fellowship and a relationship with Christ. And then in prayers, that's a fingerprint that's a little finger in the average church today. But these are the marks of the visible church. Now, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done. By whom? By the apostles. They are the ones who had the sign gifts. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every one had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they'd eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. 